This is the Inquisitive Minds Podcast. Hey, thank you for tuning in to the Inquisitive Minds Podcast. I'm your host, as usual, uh, Johnny Smith. Um, with me today, we have a special guest. He is the host and producer of Necromancer Live Show. He is the concept slash graphic designer of Deadlight LLC. He is also a freelance photographer. His latest documentary, Haunted Hartford City, can be found at his website, interface.death.net. He is the founder and lead investigator of Interface Death, uh, all the way from Hillsboro, Ohio, uh, paranormal investigator Justin Brown. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Um, <clears throat> now, I normally ask how you were doing today, but uh, you told me you didn't get much sleep last night from an investigation. You want to just jump right into that? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, man. Um, there's this historic jail in Newark, Ohio. Um, pretty cool town. It's a pretty decent sized town. It has a lot of cool history, a lot of cool historical buildings that date back to mid to late 1800s. It's a, the location of uh, a pretty big and significant uh, Native American burial ground and earthworks site. Um, there used to be a really cool canal district back in the day where they did a lot of trade and, uh, you know, a lot of stuff going on with the canal. So there's, you know, a, a good recipe for a lot of energies to do, you know, the weird things that we call the paranormal there. And the jail itself, the architecture is awesome. They call it um, little OSR because it's, it looks like just like a castle on the outside. If you didn't know it was a jail, you thought it was some rich dude's castle. Oh, wow. Now, did you get any uh, interesting activity last night? <sighs> oh, yeah. We live streamed uh, two. We had two streams. So. Um, your listeners can definitely go check out what when what happened on the live stream, and it was unexpected. You want uh, to give the, us the address for the live stream? Um, yeah, you can go to YouTube.com/slash Interface Death Live. I have two channels. I have a live channel for our paranormal research, and then I have one that I upload like YouTube series, tutorials, educational stuff, and documentaries. Um, the Haunted Hartford City was our commercial film that we have on our website now. So you can't watch that unless you go to the website, but everything else that we've done in the last seven years is on the interface death paranormal research, but the live streams are on a separate channel. Okay. Now I'm going to be honest. I've been out of town uh, for the past week. So I didn't able to, wasn't able to research as much about you as I would like to, but you were recommended to me from the guys from one candle society. Uh, go check them guys out. And they said you were the gold standard when it came to paranormal investigators, uh, especially for a podcast. Um, so I want to thank those guys. And I, I just want to quick uh, get into your, your history a little bit. You know, what started you on the field of paranormal investigations? The paranormal has pretty much been um, a part of my life from very early on. My mother um, is a very gifted person as far as um, psychic phenomenon. Uh, alien encounters, time slips, you name it. She is a very unique, um, gifted and very talented person when it comes to that type of thing. So she, you know, she told me stories about her encounters with all these different types of phenomena. And uh, they used to scare the crap out of me, honestly. And I thought my mom was not only weird, but crazy at times because well, her claims and stories were so fantastical. To be fair, uh, a lot of us usually think our mothers are crazy. Um, I think it's fascinating, though, that you said alien encounters, because obviously that's uh, kind of in the wheelhouse for inquisitive minds. I just have yet to find someone who has actually uh, had an alien encounter um, first person. So I'm really looking forward to that. And it seems like a lot of people that get into the paranormal field, it's nothing new. Like you said, you grew up with it. Um, you started a team in 2013, you said? Correct. And that team is Interface Death? Yeah, I had some profound experiences that kind of got my view on the whole subject matter in the right place to, you know, really take a look at it. I mean, I had, I mean, there's definitely a story that I tell on every show that I go on to kind of give you a good idea of what I've been through and what I've experienced to get, you know, a good grip on how I see things and why I'm motivated to do that. And, uh, 
the death of we my father it. in 2011 was what really shifted me into wanting to find out not only about the afterlife, but about how you can communicate and, you know, connect with mm -hmm. the other side. So oh, I always start off the story by telling uh, folks that my mother and father, we moved from renting a home into buying a home in Hillsborough, Ohio, which is Southern Ohio. And you start to get into the foothills in Appalachia and, you know, hence the name Hillsborough. So there's a little house in a really nice little suburb in Hillsborough, Ohio, surrounded by teachers, cops, firefighters. And uh, we loved the place. A uh, firefighter sold us the house. He had built it, had it built and kind of raised his um, three kids there. And there was nothing weird or paranormal about the house. Perfectly normal house. We moved in. We loved it for about a year. Everything was fine. Um, from what I understand, the firefighter moved outside of town on a farm, and um, I believe that he started having marital issues. He had discovered that his wife was seeing someone else, and uh, that drove him into a uh, fit of despair. Um, whatever you want to say, he was not very happy, and he, he didn't cope with it well, so he ended up uh, driving his truck out to the barn lot out there on that farm, and he killed himself. Oh, and uh-huh it is when that happens so what was strange is when that happened the events we started experiencing at the house that he sold us started happening so we um we first started hearing footsteps going up and down the stairs now on the second floor of the house that's where me and my brother had our bedrooms and my father and mother started hearing the footsteps at night and of course my father thought it was just me and my brother not, you know, sneaking around, not going to bed. So he would yell at us, hey, get in your beds. And my mother, being who she is, she's like, that's, I don't know if that's them. And then she started realizing that this man was, re had returned. Um, maybe not in spirit, um, maybe as, you know, some type of energy. And we'll kind of get into my theories about what they are, but she told my father that he was going upstairs trying to find where his own children were sleeping only mm -hmm. to find me and my brother there instead. It was very confusing for him. So kind of about 10 years of foot, you know, phantom footsteps, um, strange feelings of not being alone presence in the room, you know, it's kind of hard to describe. It, you know, it is. You can hear or see. And when you tell someone, you know, I don't feel like I'm alone or I feel a presence oftentimes people don't believe you. And that's what's the unfortunate thing. Cause I, I feel like there's so much more out there that we just can't see or sense. It's tricky because there's a lot of elements in psychology that would suggest that our mind plays tricks on us. And that there's a lot of false positives when determining whether if something of that nature is near you. So there's really not a good way to validate to skeptics or, you know, unbiased, you know, people, you know, hearing these claims. But anyway, um, we'll fast forward about 10 years from that point um, where I had my first child. It's, um, my mom and dad got separated. The house started to become, you know, dilapidated because my dad never, no longer felt it motivated. Uh oh, I think we lost Johnny here. There he is. There we go. Um, my, my father started to become unmotivated by fix up the house due to the divorce. And then I had my first child, which is a boy. And it was just me, him and my dad at the house living there at the time. My dad was at work. I'm upstairs with my son and he's about two, two and a half, just starting to talk and have sentences that you can understand. So he's telling me about a man that he's been playing with. And he said, it's a man named John. So I immediately assume that he's talking about my father because his name is John. Okay. And so I ask him, are you talking about Papa John? And he looks at me just with the normal face. No, John R. He's dead. So the first conversation I ever had with my son was this one. And it just so happened that the firefighter that my mother was trying to convince everyone at the house that was causing the strange phenomenon to occur. His name was John R. My son never heard the name. The name was never spoken, not only not around him, but wasn't spoken in a decade. Now, as a father, oh, when that was the first conversation you had with your son, mm -hmm. what did that make you think? What were your thoughts then? Um, it's one of those um, moments that's hard to explain. Um, 
I always I always fail to remember how I explain it on other shows. It's it's almost like a combination of shock and a rewiring of the brain because it, it doesn't compute. Okay, you know, you don't accept the program, so you're sitting there like confused and shocked. So what I ended up doing was I left him there in his diaper, went outside in the back porch <laughs> and just chain smoked. I smoked at the time and I was just sitting there like trying to process it. So it was almost like a PTSD type moment because you, you, you are already playing around with the idea that you're living and dealing with the haunting of sorts, but you're not a hundred percent sold on it. But at that point in time, it's almost like you're plunged into the sea to where you can no longer stay dry. And the wetness yeah, is yeah, the realization. Yeah, that's the 100% confirmation whether you choose to believe or not that it's real because there's no other explanation that's possible. So if you're someone that's kind of stressed out about the paranormal, whether it's real, if you want to believe what, you know, what people would like you to think that's real and not real, that there's no monsters in a the closet, there's no ghosts in the attic. Well, those things are real if you're talking to me anyway, and uh, that's the proof. So, yeah, started. It, it, it's interesting because uh, paranormal entities, ghosts, what have you, uh, any of these things, um, they don't need your permission to exist. You know, a lot of people no. think uh, if I don't believe in them, they're not real. They exist whether you believe in them or not. And there's a lot of us out here that will tell you they exist. And I also add to that by saying, um, because there's a lot of people out there trying to find evidence and have their own experiences. And I, I always tell them, um, you don't find the paranormal, the paranormal finds you. I would agree to that 100% uh, dealing with a lifetime of experiences myself. Um, I've also started some, some paranormal investigating mm -hmm. on a very small scale, um, just casually with friends. But I wanted to ask you as a professional, what type of equipment do you use? Well, I started off using the stuff that they, you see on TV and the stuff they sensationalize in paranormal pulp culture, like spirit boxes, you know, all the gadgets go beep and light up and all that stuff. Um, then, you know, I, I, I learned to what's a waste of time and what's, what's things that you can't validate or can't determine as anomalous. You can only, it's based on belief pretty much. So we just focus, we spend all of our money on high grade camera gear, lighting gear. What we actually, dead light is actually our own, you know, infrared and full spectrum and visible light lighting company. We sell oh, illuminators. Okay. Um, and we, uh, put all of our money into data loggers, recording audio gear. We use like high grade gear that musicians and sound engineers use. And then we apply questions and hypotheses to what makes voice phenomena happen. And we test them with the audio gear. We have custom setups and we use scientific methods to try to determine whether we can find answers to what we think might be causing the, you know, the stuff to occur. And uh, we focus on that. We don't, we, we do to data loggers. We try to measure, you know, anomalies in a mag in electromagnetic field and, pressure and humidity and vibration if things you know are reported to like walk up steps or touch things um, if things move on their own that's the stuff that we hear all the time that happens so we focus on the claims and investigate those instead of trying to develop a telephone that talks to the dead or an app that does this you know that it's a radar that finds the ghost we don't do that because it's it's not something that's productive and valuable and the field that you're trying to submit uh, information and data to a community of legitimate skeptics, peer reviewers, you know, scientists, you, you're, I'm, I'm really actually trying to hand over stuff to people that can say, okay, you have something here. We know these people, they have resources with all this money and all this knowledge to, you know, to do the real stuff. Like I'm trying to point them in ways that they can go you know, to try to drive the, the actual research of the subject. I find it fascinating um, because the more and more paranormal investigators I talk to, the more um, it's revealed that a lot of you guys are very science-based driven, um, very technological, technologically advanced. And um, a lot of times when I speak to someone from an outside perspective, they think you guys are just out, you know, searching for fun, making up stories. Um, it's very interesting. There's a lot of science behind it. And I actually respect that more about you guys, that you're not just 
jumping after crazy hunches. You're, you're trying to find things you can prove scientifically. Um, it, it's difficult and it, it, it's a hundred percent work. So that's why you don't find a lot of them because the, you know, people, they were entertainment, which there's nothing wrong with, but that gets confused with the legitimate field research that people are trying to do. So kind of, they have to, combat that and you know defend themselves against those that are just trying to have fun or you know trying to just you know get away from the normal grind of their jobs and life so that's have, i think that's what makes it a little difficult have you guys uh captured any uh, images of like a full body apparition or anything interesting like that no um me being a professional photographer i'm pretty much able to find um explanations for anomalies that you see or stuff that you might define as a ghost or I'm not quite sure of which is what anomaly would be um, as something caused by the optics of the camera and the environment situation they were um, photographing and because usually you'll you know you'll rarely see people that are trying to take pictures of ghosts take pictures of ghosts i mean and then when you find those people the bias the confirmation bias is so strong it's hard for them to see other explanations and a lot of those people are not trained in photography and educated in photography which is mind-blowing to me but it makes That's sense Phil said that you bring to the table here with this yeah, the ghost in the machine aspect of a lot of people out there searching for answers is real. You know, the, the ghosts are, you know, things that we don't understand and a misidentification of what's actually there. So it's, it's very difficult to actually find evidence of something that you really don't understand. It's almost puts you in a category of an anomaly hunter, which is pretty much far removed from a paranormal researcher because anomalies don't necessarily mean that it's supernatural. It just means something that you can't understand or explain. So even the, the definition, yeah, it, it, even the very <laughs> definition of the paranormal we challenge, and you'll read that in our website, um, we're trying to remove the para from the paranormal. We're trying to say, hey, look, science can explain these things if we apply it correctly and we use the scientific approach correctly and do the work that might take a lifetime or even more to um, to apply correctly. So I'm not in this for a quick, you know, fame. I'm not in this for money. I'm actually just trying to say if I can provide one piece of insight in what the actual is going on, whether it's in the mind and the perception or actually reality that you can objectify using science hmm, that's interesting i want to say for the listeners real quick if you hear some ramblings in the background that's uh charlie and ralphie my two turtles they're i'm recording in studio uh I'm not recording in studio i'm at the house so that's them in the background if you hear now it, you wear a lot of hats um you said you're a photographer uh obviously paranormal investigator um movie producer um graphic designer concept artist now did one start or did they all kind of intertwine and start together what was your first love i guess your first passion first passion was uh artistic expression and you know visual art my mother was an artist i was always interested in art all my children are deeply um, interested and motivated through the artistic expression so that is one of the drivers in my work so that's where the filmmaking and photography come from. You know, I try to connect with people and um, craft things visually and uh, musically. And uh, that's when you see the documentaries, you see the video content, there is creative stuff in there. But I try to lace it with actual research, actual, you know, documentation of what we're doing. I'm not trying to fake things, hype things up, but I'm adding my own vision my artistic vision and creative vision into it. So that's hopefully that makes it come across original and something that is worth spending a lot of time watching because it's hard to get people to see your work and appreciate your work. If it's just numbers on a chart or just mm -hmm. clips of with, you know, what you think might be anomalous and reasons why with all the data there cross checking and it all. So, it's it's hard to get noticed out there and even with all that applied it's still even hard because it's so oversaturated with the same stuff going on that's one of my favorite things though that's kind of the reason i do this because 
I'm interested in what people are passionate about. You know what I mean? Because that's that's when you really learn when people just are so filled up with what they do or, or what they go after that they just can't help but spill it out. So I love talking to someone who's just passionate in general. Um, it kind of reminds me, and this might be a very uh, oversimplification, but of like Bill Nye the Science Guy. Like you're going to learn, but you're going to have fun at the same time. Right. We're all about art here, um, especially performance art. Um, most of my listeners know outside of this when COVID's not around, I'm a stand-up comedian, um, which also leads me into my new plug. Uh, check out Gino's Comic to Comic podcast, uh, hosted by Gene Quigley. It's under the Idiot Radio family. And his first guest was T-Rope, comedian T-Rope. Make sure you check him out. Now, um, when you go on these investigations, is it of your own accord or are you guys uh, in a position where people call you now to report things? Both. Both, um, okay. Over the years, we've learned to vet and um, recognize the red flags and a lot of people that call we do back you know it's very hard to uh, be careful what places you go and what people you go because you're kind of risking yourselves there's a liability illegal liability mm -hmm. attached to all these re residential cases or maybe people that even have workplaces that um, have claims and they want you to investigate them. and drew introduces a new level of liability that's even more uh risky so, you know, that requires you to get bonded, have insurance, become a, like a legal business, have an LLC in place to protect yourself, like things like that. So that makes it very hard to do. Do you mind telling me a little bit more about your vetting process? Like what are some of your red flags? Well, um, w w we always conduct a phone er interview with folks that email us or, you know, just directly call me. Um, we want to have a uh, vetting process on the phone to see that if there's something that we can just figure out over the phone without even going to the location. Because a lot of people, they already believe in what they are experiencing so much that no matter what you do when you go, if it uh, if it goes against what they believe that, that they're dealing with, it actually doesn't help them at all. Mm -hmm. So you want to first determine if, you know, are they legitimately wanting answers from someone who claim that they're professional and, and reliable to do so? That's the people you want to go try to help. The ones that just want you to go there and validate what they believe, you know, that's the people you don't want to go to. Okay. And because usually it's not, it doesn't work out very well because mo most often than not, you are finding explanations that are natural, that are not ghosts, that are not demons, they're not what they think. And I'm not saying that, you know, most people are just crazy or just flat out wrong, but the paranormal to people that aren't used to, you know, approaching it like a team like mine does, does not go down the correct paths to reach certain, you know, conclusions about things. They're not, you know, because you have to wear the mini hats. You have to be, you know, really keen on psychology, keen on tech, keen on photography, keen on, you know, um, medical stuff because we have EMTs, we have technicians in the group. We've worked with police officers in the group, investigators that do other investigative work. So um, once you get that, yeah. um, could you tell us uh, a little bit more about your team, how many people are in it, what they're mm -hmm. uh, compromised, <clears throat> what they do, uh, so to speak, what their expertise is? Right. Um, um, well, we have five members, and, but we work with other members often from other teams. Um, I work with my mother um, and we also work with historians and tour guides from the locations that we investigate. Like last night, we worked with uh, Darren Smith, who is a tour guide for Old Licking County Jail in Newark, Ohio. So it's not, a lot of teams don't take that opportunity, but we'll get, we won't get into that. But the Josh Bender, <laughs> is uh, a, he works uh, for Invenergy, I think that's the name of the company. He works on turbines that generate electricity by the power of wind. Um, he fixes them, he's a technician, uh, very well, uh, very good at his job. So he's the one that actually makes 
the uh, light that um, the debt from the Deadlight Company. So he makes okay. illuminators for the paranormal field, and he's starting to branch out into the video field and other things for lighting. But he does our drone photography, does camera work. He, um, you know, he does the Deadlight stuff, and then he investigates alongside of that. Derek Schreiner is the uh, lead tech uh, assistant for the team. He helps me develop all the technical stuff that we're trying to do in the field is, you know, with the voice phenomena recorders, with things like cloud chambers, with things like remote controlled um, devices that go, you know, collect data and record things with, you know, remote control stuff, you name it, you know, sets up cameras all nine yards. Okay. Um, and then their significant others, their girlfriends and wives and stuff, they're the metaphysicists in the group. We, um, they claim to have abilities, so we investigate their abilities at these locations. We have them do blind walkthroughs to see if they get the same stuff, to see if they get different stuff, and if they correlate with the claims history and so on and so forth. And then you have my mother, which is, you know, someone we definitely want to investigate um, and put in these locations to see what comes out of it. And, you know, from time to time, we work with others and on other teams to try to diversify what we do to see, you know, to try to get out of the fishbowl to see if there's things that they can introduce. Maybe they've investigated the location and then they can bring to the table what we have not already known about or, you know, can offer as far as experience goes. But that's the group. Um, and uh, like I said, um, their day jobs and backgrounds involve um, emergency medical training, firefighting, um, technical uh, stuff, engineering, okay. uh, you name it. I mean, even Missy um, and Jess, um, Jess, Jessica Bias is Josh Bender's girlfriend, and uh, Missy Vastine is Derek's girlfriend, which pretty much they're married, but they're not official. You know that how that goes. She's mm -hmm. had medical training as well. So, you know, that's pretty much paints the background. What really stands out for me and something I like is how you describe their quote unquote abilities with skepticism, even though you're on their team and you're close to them. Um, I appreciate that because I always try and uh, approach topics as a skeptic, although for the integrity of the program, you know, when someone tells me they're a medium or, or what have you, I describe them as such. Now, that being said, you, you obviously work with uh, those two ladies in your group as well as your mother. Do you ever work with any outside person that says maybe they're a medium or a sensitive or whatever the terms may be? Um, very seldom. I, I can't remember exactly when we have. We've interviewed those types of people for um, places we've done. Um, but um, it's very rare that people that claim to be psychic and speak to the dead zone and so forth will allow you to scrutinize anything that they do um, for obvious reasons. So I am very privileged and lucky to be in a situation where I'm allowed to do that. Um, most psychics, you know, it's very stressful and confrontational for them to have someone like me go in and say, okay, I'm going to put you to the test because mm -hmm. a lot of them are entrepreneurs. A lot of them are charging folks money to do what they claim to do. And if you um, attacked their ability to perform, then that, you know, lowers their credibility. Like you were yeah, saying. It doesn't look good for business. No. Um, where did the name interface death come from? Oh, that's a good question. Not everybody asked that. So before I was getting into the, before I even knew I was going to be a, you know, a paranormal researcher, I was a musician. You know, I was a sound engineer, um, ran sound, sung for bands, played guitar, so on and so forth. So I already had a background in sound engineering and uh, I wanted to do a metal band, a metal group, um, heavy metal group project with a friend of mine that played guitar. And it was right after my dad died in 2011. So the mortality death thing was heavily on my mind. I was pretty much fixated on it at that point. And uh, I thought a cool death metal band would be uh, interface death. You know, it's pretty okay. much meaning how you connect with the other side. But that that wasn't even a realization. I didn't even see its first band practice. So it was just like a shelf idea. And then once the opportunity for me to pursue paranormal research came along, I was like, Ooh, wait a minute. That name kind of fits what 
you know, people, folks like us do. We're trying to connect with the other side, not through music this time, but through field research. So that's where it came from. I stole it from another project. That <laughs> it's, really... it's definitely an interesting name. Um, I like the logo as well in the background. Mm -hmm. A lot of people seem to have uh, very similar names when it comes to paranormal investigation groups and whatnot, you know, uh, spooky society and all that jazz. So I like that, that it's very unique. Um, now, you are the host and producer of Necromancer Live Show. That I take it as a live Facebook show? Or uh, yes. I'm sorry. I actually have three shows. Necromancer is a show that I've... I haven't done since I've been working full time because COVID pretty much took away all my self-employment that I was doing, you know, the photography, graphic design, all that stuff. Um, so I started working in local factories just so I, and my, and of course my wife um, has multiple sclerosis and now she's been trying to get disability for over a year. Mm -hmm. So we're working on that. So our, our ability to pay the bills shifted. So I dropped the necromancer show, but I do a, a a weekly show on Tuesdays called My Paranormal Soapbox. And me, Jessica, and Missy do that show. And it basically, I get up on my soapbox and I tell people what I think, what I feel about paranormal topics, gear that's used, methods that's used, so on and so forth. And I've been, I've done over 100 episodes of that for the last couple of years. On Fridays, we do a show called Interface Death Weekly. Um, it's a two hour show that we report on local trending paranormal news. That kind of goes viral. We talk about gear. We talk about gadgets on that show. And uh, people often submit us stuff to review live, like photographs, audio. They'll link a video that they either recorded themselves or they found online to get our feedback on. And we peer review stuff. Sometimes we have investigators or other folks come on and re we review their stuff with them on the show, um, not only just to, to promote what that they, they're doing, but to get actual give them, you know, unbiased, real feedback like you know i'm telling them it's like well you know i'm i'm pretty much respectfully tell them other possibilities that could explain the phenomena that do me because a lot of people it's surprising a lot of people even the ones on shows that claim to be experts don't know jack crap about the stuff they're using like it's amazing to me it's amazing that you know how cameras work i would imagine if someone had video or photographic evidence you would be the person to bring it to yeah, they're far and few between. But see, the, the reason they don't is because it's scrutinized. Mm -hmm. and, and, Which, and that's a stressful situation for them. If we want to prove something, though, you would think that's we, what we want. Is we, it to be scrutinized, picked they apart? Want prove, they want to prove what they believe. They don't want to uh, be objective. And that's, that's what we're dealing with, John. <laughs> I, I found that a lot, uh, speaking with a lot of people, you know, and a lot of times... And I, I mentioned this before, that causes other people to clam up. You know, I've had so many people tell me uh, some type of uh, paranormal story, whether it's ghosts or aliens or what have you, but then they'll end it with, but you're the only person I've ever told that. And I just want us to live in a society where we could openly discuss things that maybe we don't quite have proof of yet, uh, but people have been working on for many years. Now, I know that's a slippery slope, uh, with the fact checkers of the world today. Um, but paranormal, I know it's a business for you and it's a business for a lot of people, but I think for a lot of us, it's also quite fun because you get that yeah. fear of the unknown. You get that fear of you don't know what's happened. Everybody loves a scary movie. Um, there's a balance that we try to, you know, we, we try to balance everything. We try to stay grounded um, I think that's important because if, 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 if people know that you're not afraid of being wrong, if, if you, if you think that you're wrong or you think that maybe you had something wrong and they see you learning and growing and you take them along with you, that's the integrity and respect that you will get. That's long lasting. Even if, you know, you're not really making the progress or being the super cool ghost hunter guy that a lot of people like to be you're just the average joe that you can go on discord and talk to like a normal person that's just like you and me mm -hmm. and but they're doing things that are fun and cool like you said but it's not attached to their ego like we try to attach these things from our ego 
and allow them to operate in a space that doesn't matter whether it's right and wrong. doesn't matter if it's, it doesn't have proof or it does. It, it, it's, it's just dealing with connections with people the right way. You want to connect with people through storytelling. Um, you want to connect with people that love history, that love the prevers, prevers, preservation of history. I'm tired, <laughs> man. We all get tripped up. So there, that that's what you want to try to do. As long as you're trying to do that, it doesn't matter if your photo gets debunked. It doesn't matter if what you thought was a ghost wasn't because the pursuit of the unknown has no, nothing fearful attached to it. It has no you know, way to trip you up. And that's, that's what I would advocate people do, you know, it's like, Hey, I, I don't know what this is. What do you think? I don't, it, it's not really physical evidence, but it's interesting. Let's take a look at it. And if people come along and it can explain it or offer up different explanations for it, that should be the fun part. Don't attach your own spirituality, your own beliefs to it because you'll end up getting mad or getting upset yeah yeah it's easy to get upset once we realize we're wrong um that's hard to hard to deal with for a lot of us you know what i mean but uh, i know is, is there a uh, investigation you went on that stood out that you you would mind discussing something with uh, a lot of activity or something that you witness something you don't see often yeah um a really good uh and a place to investigate in Ohio is Madison Seminary. Um, a, a couple of the TV teams that you see, like Ghost Hunters and uh, Destination Fear, excuse me, <clears throat> have been there and had product video productions of the place for their series on TV. And what was strange was Ghost Hunters had went there and they pretty much attacked the integrity of Adam Kimmel and uh, Rebecca Kirschbaum about what their really? intentions were. Uh, Ghost Hunters, is that the one with uh, Zach Baggins? Baggins? That's Ghost Adventures. Ghost Hunters oh, okay. is the new reboot with Grant Wilson, uh, okay. Daryl Marston, uh, Brandon Alvis, and others. Okay. Okay, um, and they're on A&E, I believe. So they went there, and they kind of pretty much attacked the integrity of the owner and the investigators, the, the hmm. resident investigators there. But when we go, we went there and investigate, I found that the ghost hunters, the way they portrayed it, were in the wrong there. Um, I did capture things like a physical manifestation of a voice on eight, nine different devices. And there's, I mean, if you see our work, we have face cams on ourselves the whole time. We rigged the whole building. We make sure that if there's a sound that kind of contaminated the area that were investigated, we could pinpoint what created it and we're Face very anal thing i never thought about that oh yeah yeah we walk around like side like the borg and star trek we kind of get teased about it but dude i have to see what your face is doing all the time you have to be mic'd at all times you have to have point pov cameras you have to have static cameras set up in ways that cover the coverage has to be important outside the location inside the location so you're not confusing outside noises with inside noises it's all about cross-checking so when this voice manifested out of a certain area in the basement of the Madison Seminary, ghost hunters actually caught the same thing, but in a different area. But still, there was some sometime a strange drama attached to how they're um, mistelling the history. Okay. And, go, and maybe do even performing witchcraft in the place to try to make the place more haunted. Like they attacked the place and the people associated with it. And I thought that was odd like like that's a that's a slippery slope to me like you know if you're going to put yourself out there and, and claim that they're doing that but don't really have good evidence to back up that they're doing that that kind of makes you look bad and it kind of hurts that, the field when if they let you in to investigate i'm not going to be disrespectful right you i mean know, you that, can you that, can that, be that, respectful yeah. and have opposing beliefs yeah. and outcomes but yeah, agreed. Um, so you're at this uh, seminary, and you say you picked up a good EVP? A disembodied voice. Okay. Like I heard it with my ears. Uh, Missy Vastine heard with her ears, and we, we had a static camera in there that picked it up. My camera, I, I had two cameras. I had a forward-facing Sony AX100, and then I had a face cam, which is an action cam. They both picked it up on their audio. Um, Missy had a audio rig that 
controlled our wireless lavalier mics and the shotgun mic that she was having. So we cross-check it with that. It came across all of it, and we heard it. So that what would it classify say? it as a – what it say? Yes. It's a, it answered my question with a yes. Okay. Uh, I thought there's a particular corner. There's a, there's a belief that a woman might have been buried down there. But when I was at, when I, for some reason I was directed towards this corner, and it's bricked in. It's, it's using masonry that's different from the original structure. So I was like, this is odd. It sticks out to me. So I was asking, I was like, okay, if you can hear me and you can respond, is there something behind that bricked in corner? And it, a voice came out of nowhere and said, yes. And clearly if you watched the episode that we put up, I'm freaked out and amazed by it. Like that's not supposed to happen. A voice yeah. is not supposed to come out of the middle of nowhere and answer your question. So that's why you see ghost hunters running around in the dark with night vision cameras talking to the air because sometimes it replies. <laughs> it's always fun. It's always fun. You see, that that would leave me excited but frustrated because uh, not being able to go behind the bricked up wall, you got to wonder what's back there. Well, they um, ghost hunters did have cadaver dogs go in there, and they did hit on something. So they dug a little hole in the ground, and just enough to say they dug, but not enough to actually reveal if anything was buried in there. Yeah, but other psychics have have pointed to the ground and that wall. So I think they said they took out a little brick and took a sneak peek. And, I, and once I get to talk to Adam Kimmel about it again, I'm I'm going to try my damnest to convince him to take a section of it big enough down to actually see what's behind it and what's inside. That That's interesting. Um, I hope you get to find out more about that. Now, your latest documentary, um, Haunted Hartford City, you want to touch on that a little bit? Where's that, where's that at? Where is it filmed? What is it uh, covered? Sure. There is a town in Indiana called Hartford City, and it's in uh, Blackford County, Indiana. So we were looking around in the rural Indiana for places to investigate. And we came across a couple of properties owned by Dan Allen. He owned a historic jail that he actually lived in uh, inside of the city limits of Hartford City. And he owned another building that had local businesses on the first floor. On the second floor, there was uh, a bunch of rooms that had like a bank offices, lawyer offices. And there was a speakeasy that used to operate in there in the early 1900s and there there was paranormal claims of, with associated with that room but the 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 interest came with the jail um the jail was supposed to have a lot of claims and reports of you know paranormal encounters there so that's what got us interested in the location and once we got there we started to meet other people that had access to other locations and right down the street a block away you can visually see it from the jails in the Monroe house, which a lot of people know about. It's been on TV. It's um, been, you could see, you would see it online and on TV shows since 2008, since Eddie Norris acquired that. And uh, the document, the documentary covers all the main, uh, four haunted locations in the town. It's a small town, like a population of maybe a thousand, 1500 okay. people. Um perfect storm for your, you know, your scary story, um, creepy history. And um, it just sets the setting, you know, the, the cliche of the setting of a haunted town with haunted stuff in it. But we got access, we got keys to these four locations for uh, a weekend over the, in, in multiple times over the course of two years. And we pretty much gathered all of our investigation footage and data and made a, a two hour documentary that we are, um, you can rent, um, download, or purchase the Blu-ray from our website. And we didn't try to put it out on like Amazon TV or Vimeo. Um, we're not trying to uh, maximize the profits of it, but we want to at least get some revenue from our work solely from our website. Um, There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. No, I don't think so. But you know, it's it's kind of a risk because we we spend thousands of dollars and might only get two dollars in return. <laughs> but I I just think that you know we want to control um, how we release it, who owns property over it, and who makes money off of it. Because I think the people who's put the money in should get the money out of it, all of it. I agree. I agree. And you know what? I love uh, I love doing it on your own self uh, promoting. 
self-producing, all that, everything mm -hmm. that you do, it's your work. You put your time and money into it. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with independently selling it. Right. I agree. Now, so. how, is that your first film or you have other documentary films? I have a lot of documentaries. I, I, I tried to um, do a, a my first attempt at a commercial documentary was at a uh, old school in Higginsport, Ohio. But uh, some former members ended up leaving the group, and it, there was some drama there. So that is, that's when I started actually getting consent video consent forms that um, gave me legal permission to use their likeness and their voices and them on film. Because um, if you don't do that, they can end up um, um, filing for a uh, resist or a cease and desist order okay. because they're they're in the work that you're doing. So. That's why that ended up um, getting taken down. But you can still rent the Blu-ray, I think, from the local library there in Ripley, Ohio, which is all the way down by the Ohio River. But um, that was my first attempt. So when I came back and did my second attempt, um, I actually did all the legal hoops. So you got to jump through, cover all the bases, dot all the I's, cross all the T's. And the, the team that I have now got that done over the last two years. And a lot of... Uh, interviews from the people involved, um, the owners of the locations, the people that have had experiences at the locations and the investigations of those locations with a lot of, you know, historical storytelling and footage from, you know, being in that location to kind of help paint the uh, picture of what the city looks like and uh, what it would be like to be there. Now, you briefly touched on it earlier, but only once. Um... I know you do a lot of uh, investigations for the paranormal, but you mentioned your mother claims mm -hmm. to have had contact with aliens. Have you dealt with other people that have claimed contact with aliens? Yes, but it's very far and few between. Uh, I think the last time I interviewed someone that had an encounter of the, uh, I want to say, the first kind where you actually just see a craft. Am I correct about that? You know what? Um I have no idea. I know there's different degrees of it. But yeah, we'll so, um, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I'm not a UFOologist, but I do interview folks that have those claims. So I, I went to school with a guy. He was four years older than me, but I ended up hanging out with him after, you know, during and after school. And I knew the guy very well, and he contacted me after he saw that I was doing paranormal field research. And this is a guy that was terrified of what he saw. He didn't want anybody to know that he saw it, but he wanted to know what it was, and he wanted to share it with somebody he thought that he should for the, uh, you know, for research purposes. He wants, you know, maybe to get some answers even. So um, I never recorded him on face, but I recorded the audio. We, I do have a video on my YouTube channel with the interview there. Um, edited anyway, and I kind of, you know, throw in some B-roll to kind of help that video um, be worth watching. So he was an Army guy. He was a Stinger, okay. Stinger missile guy. So he was actually trained in aircraft identification. So that made him a very reputable um, witness to an anomalous craft, in my opinion. He says, dude, this thing was two football, this 200 yards across V-shaped, classic V-shaped UFO that blinked. It was hovering and then blinked like, like crazy and took off at light speed. And he said, you know, the classic jets that fly and chase the thing. Um, very cool story. And, you know, it's, it's funny. He said he went out, we, we live in a rural area. He was right outside down. He went out on the front porch to take a leak. Okay. So he's taking a leak on his front porch and he looks up and it's, it's, um, it's just now the sun's setting and it's just now uh, dusk and he looks up and he sees this with his wang hanging out. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no one's going to be honest about this, but you know, a guy that really saw something. So he ended yeah. up seeing it, you know, go to the backyard. He went out on the back deck and he's looking and it takes off and he is freaked out. He contacts MUFON. MUFON actually knew about the craft because maybe some other people reported it and uh, he was freaked out quite a bit. But I thought that was interesting because there was a wave of reports back a few years ago in that area in Ohio. And what is interesting about the area of Ohio I live in, all the way down to Kentucky, there's this um, – kind of like a parallel, I forgot what they call it, but there's a certain parallel of longitude where 
lots of UFOs and alien encounters happen. And the Ohio River especially, they have a lot of power plants. Point Pleasant, West Virginia is right on the river. Mm-hmm. Of course, you have the Mothman and all the UFO lore surrounding that area. It's I just live right in a weird area with Indian burial mounds, UFOs, ghosts, cryptids, you know. Yeah. See, aliens, I don't know. Maybe I'm chomping at the bit, bit too much because – I've never seen anything that I thought was an alien. I just, I want to see him so bad. And shout out to MUFON, uh, where we have West Virginia State uh, lead investigator, Fred Saluga, coming back on the program in a few weeks here. So check that out, guys. Yeah, aliens for me, like they're always so fascinating, but they're those things that are just so far away. Yeah, I've never even had a close encounter. I remember, um, are you familiar with a couple weeks back when there was a, quote unquote UFO sighting in New Jersey. It turned yes. out to be the blimp. Yes. Oh my Lord. I got sent that by dozens of people. Um, <laughs> obviously, and I'm not upset about it, but when I first looked at it, my immediate thought was this is a blimp. Um, I was very disappointed and all the friends were like, no, no, it's a real alien. Guys, if they're real, we might eventually see them, but a blimp is a blimp. Yeah. Well, um, what ends up happening is, if I would add to that, um, the news mm-hmm. is not helping with the identification of a lot of that stuff. They, you know, they're putting out the, the Tic Tac video and you know the Pentagon doing their stuff. They're releasing all this UFO stuff for whatever agenda that they're they have, but that's not helping at all. I know what I'm going to sound like here, uh, but the media rarely helps with anything right um <laughs> take that how you will guys but fuck the media even though i guess i'm kind of part of it um, you're not mainstream <laughs> as a as a paranormal investigator um i talk with a lot of them that seem to have maybe a handful of experiences where they've had physical contact have you ever been touched or been around someone who was touched or scratched or anything i've, I've been touched uh Okay, there's this place that is well known. Um, there was a, uh, a a series on History Channel, and they covered a place called Willis Weep in Indiana. It's in Cayuga, Indiana, and uh, involves a willow tree in front of this really oddly constructed house that's in the shape of a cross. And it's weird because in the corners of this cross-shaped house, there's closets and windows. All the closets and windows are in corners. It's weird, mm-hmm. man. And there's there's a story about the willow tree that's cursed. And uh, I think the series on History Channel was called The the Most Haunted House in in America or the World or whatever. You know how they try to sell it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was outside filling B-roll underneath this willow tree because, you know, I want to get close to willow tree, see if I can experience anything. Well, I did. First time I got touched, I had this shoulder rig holding my camera and i'm focused pulling in from the leaves of the tree into the front porch you know try to do a cinematic shot and Mm -hmm. something i feel something physically grab my shoulder and pull it hard enough to where it pulls the camera up like that and i'm like wow i'm amazed so i kind of step back and i play it off cool i'm like okay I'll back away from the tree. And then when I go back into the building behind the house where we had staged all of our equipment for the investigation, I'm like, oh shit. That I was don't mean real. You sound like a fanboy, but that sounds so goddamn awesome. It's scary and awesome at the same time. So because you know, you can't see, you don't know if it's good, it's bad, you, you don't know what it is. So the fear of unknown is real. And so you, all the scary stories and the movies that you saw with all that stuff in it, you're like, mm-hmm. oh no. Um, and then now <laughs> I, you actually feel uh, you, when you start opening yourself up and explore the natural psychic ability that pretty much everybody has, um, that would be another show. Check out Paranormal Soapbox on Tuesdays anyway. But you get touched a lot after you start subjecting yourself to locations with things in it. But you know, most so of the time – the first one, it opens up? Yes, because – most people fear that most people don't want to be scratched, touched or whatever, even though you think you do, there is uh, almost like an immune system or a uh, defense system in check, whether it's in your mind or a part of your whole body that I believe that resists things. That's why when you get EVP or these sounds come across a recording, but you didn't hear them, I believe you're actually filtering them out. You're actually, it's, it's, you can repress parts of your senses. You said you had early in the program, you said you had some theories on, on 
some of this phenomenon? You want yes. to touch on those? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about two. Um, one, one hypothesis that we test with uh, EVP is an old uh, idea that when they were still using the dynamic microphones for EVP, like in the 70s, 80s, mm -hmm. so on and so forth, um, the dynamic wor microphones work off a coil that goes around a magnet that's attached to a, a diaphragm and it works off electromagnetic induction, kind of like your speakers. You see the magnet, you see the coil and the diaphragm is the actual speaker. So the signal hits the uh, coil, which induces electrons to uh, create a magnetic field to move mm -hmm. the diaphragm, which creates com compression waves that our ears um, interprets as sound. So that's how oh. the electromagnetic induction works. So the theory is if there's EMF associated with paranormal, EVP, all that stuff, that it will create electromagnetic induction effect in the dynamic microphone to cause voice phenomena. And it, I also took that idea and I use condenser microphones like me and you are using to talk to folks, has a different transducer in it that works off capacitance, which is two electri electrically conductive plates. One has positive charge, one has negative charge. When a compression waves hit that, it causes a variation in that charge and that produces a signal um, that travels down, you know, to the wire and mm -hmm. is decoded into what, you know, reproduced our, you know, our speech. So we take those ideas and how the microphones physically work and we say, okay, we can't hear them with our ears, but we're hearing them with the transducers and the microphones. So they're doing something to this. So that's okay. one theory. So we use a setup with a scientifically calibrated EMF sensor called a MagCheck 95, and it's got certification, NIST certification, so you know you're accurately measuring the magnetic field. So we couple that with the microphones and use multiple microphones if we can isolate the voice phenomenon in one and pick up the EMF signature at the same time we're hearing the voice phenomena, then you are not only validating the EVP, but you're picking up on the physical mechanics of what makes it happen. Um, so we have not had a breakthrough with that yet, but that's some, those are things that you either find evidence that it's right or cross off the list so that's what scientists do all the time they have really ideas they have ideas they test them if they don't find any evidence of them we cross off the list we go back to drawing board and adjust our hypothesis just like the scientific um, theory or the uh, method suggests so our other idea is that it involves more of the mind and it's harder to test so there was a there's a documentary on my YouTube channel that's free to watch called A Hunting on Monroe Street, which covers a, one of the locations in our commercial film. Say that again, please. Um, uh, it's called A Haunting on Monroe Street, which is a location that we investigate in the haunting of Hartford, haunting, haunted Hartford City, the Monroe okay. House. So my mother is doing a walkthrough. And uh, she's picking up on this, picking up on that. And sh she's being barred at the bottom of the steps of a two-story house, which is the Monroe house. And she's like, it won't let me, the entity won't let me go up there. So I'm like, push on. So she goes up the steps and about halfway up, she makes an incredible claim, which is not unusual for my mother to do. She says, oh my <laughs> God, this entity is lobbing severed heads down the steps. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. You said the entity is lobbing I mean, severed heads down the steps. You heard me. Okay, that's so why. I'm like, so I'm like, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> My mother has subjected me to this for years, and I'm still like, bullshit. So I'm like, okay, you're crazy. Keep on going. She's like, well, you'll catch it on the recording. I'm like, whatever, you know? So we get back. She's like, hey, I'm going to meet. I'm coming to your house. We're going to listen to that recording together. And I shit you not, Johnny. The sounds of what sounds like ripe tomatoes falling down the steps is there, but I didn't wow. hear it. She hears it. It's plain as day. That's that's so wild, man. So she hears it. She doesn't have that filter. I'm going to call it a filter where we're pressing own, our own sensory perception and these in my idea, my belief, because I think the brain knows what we can handle, what we can process and what we can't. Mm -hmm. So it protects us. It, it it's a preservation of what we want to believe reality is. Now, do you have? Um, do you think that has anything to do with our pineal gland? It's possible, and I am not equipped to test that. 
and probably <laughs> not educated enough to test that. I only know surface research, to be honest. If, if it makes you feel any better, you said a lot of technical stuff this episode that I, I, I said, he's got that. I'm going to take his word for it because uh, I'm not sure about that. Do your homework um, on everything I say, please. Oh, no. I, I, it's, uh, you know, certain things aren't my expertise. Mm-hmm. So I have to trust people that know more about it than I do. Um, only only one more question before I start rounding us off here, and uh, I'll let you go. But you see a lot of um, hauntings or, or activities, and it's either, you know, intelligent, like the, the response to uh, your question, right. or residual, you know, hauntings that are just taking place. Have you and your team experienced any sites that have dealt with uh, demonic type possession? There are claims of it, but okay. I, I've, there's only one time that I feel like it would cross into the realms of what you can consider demonic. Demonic is a belief attached to a phenomena. It's okay. not an objective determination is what I'm going to say. So what I mean by that, there is dogma and belief attached to demonic possession. That is not an actual objective perception of such phenomena. Because okay. one person could see it in one way and another person could see it the you know, complete opposite way. So what I mean by that is um, someone who all of a sudden loses control of their perceptions, of their senses, of their body, and starts to... Uh, act as if they're taking control by another entity or force or conscious person, if you will. So immediately you're, someone will see that and say they are possessed, whether it be mm-hmm. by a ghost or a demon, that is up to your interpretation. So in the Haunted Hartford City documentary, we speak to a, a gal named Deb Schneider, which is from Fort Wayne, Indiana. And she visited the Monroe House and she had a very unfavorable uh, encounter with such phenomena uh, and, that you're talking about. And when you listen to it with with um, bias, it's possession. With unbiased mm-hmm. and scrutiny, you listen to it in a different light. It sounds like a woman being attacked. And then when you look back at the history, there is reports in history and the court records of a man who did spousal abuse. Mm-hmm. And once you look at it for what it is and you hear it for what it is, that's what I believe are, is happening. People are actually being jumped by the imprint of the memory, the echo, if you will, of these events. And these, and this is where the pineal gland and the psychic ability kicks mm-hmm. in. You know, you can see it and say possession. Well, I see it and say psychic sense. Like to the, back yeah, so the empathic, the the empath takes things way too far when they connect with them. They want to embody it because they're trying to lower their vibration to that level to connect because they want to raise it up. They think they're emotional supermen. I so, guess there's a follow-up question to that because um, that's interesting, uh, taking the dogma out of it. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when we talk about a possession or a a paranormal event we think about spirits and ghosts and obviously those in our minds come from people that used to be alive um in in your opinion is there any type of entities or or spirits out there that don't necessarily come from uh, people that were alive they come from maybe somewhere else or somewhere with malice i want to say a large percentage of what we perceive as ghosts demons and entities are not the spirits of deceased people okay psychokinetic energy is what parapsychologists are um putting out there as what people are perceiving as polar guys um haunting so on and so forth so what that means is the senses or the ability to perceive such things are actual imprints in the in the environment it's energy that has its own field of existence that can vibrate and be excited to the point where it vibrates other fields of our physical reality because if you look into quantum field theory 
if something excites the electron field enough, it's going to excite the electron field and you're going to get light emissions, light radiation from it. Just look into the physics of it. So one of my theories that I'm trying to create a model for when I write my book is there is a psychic field and the kinetic energy associated with the excitations of that field is what creates excitations in the electromagnetic field that's where you get spikes in your meters that's where you see light anomalies it's excitating the photon field so on and so forth so when we are experiencing hauntings feeling you know like we're getting jumped we're seeing these weird things shadows lights etc we're dealing with a field that's not dead people that's not these scary things that live in our closets and under our beds it's the energy in the environment that's highly morphic and psychoactive to our own minds and we are the ingredient and in how it ticks. And you once I threw my mind there. And once I come up with my model, we can start scientifically testing such things. And if you have a lot of money, I would like to take it and prove my theory. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, Inquisitive Minds podcast is also looking for investors. So if you got some money you want to throw our way, uh, by all means. And then I'm just going to end it uh, with a simple question for you. Um, maybe maybe simple to some. Do animals have spirits? Has there been hauntings by animals? Okay. You listeners out there, inquisitive minds, everything is made of energy. That's my answer to that question. Okay. Um, well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Plug time. Where can the people find you? Put it all out there, brother. Interfacedeath.net's right there if you're if you're watching this video feed right now. That's the hub of where you can find everything. Videos, social media links, you can contact us, you can watch our documentary. Um, that's where you I would direct them. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Um, LinkedIn, if that's your thing, we're everywhere. <laughs> we try to branch out and try to connect with as much people as possible so we can drive our research, make it better, grow, learn, and take everybody that's interested in what we're doing along with us. So I appreciate you having me on, man. Um, hopefully, you know, we can do this again sometime. And yeah, I, would I, would love to to. I would love to share more of my ideas because I have a crap ton that you probably would be interested in. No, but they were all so fascinating. Um, I tell you what, guys, you can also check me out at the What in the History podcast. Uh, we just covered last week Al Capone. Uh, this week, we're uh, covering the Korean War, um, or at least some of it, because in two one-hour episodes, we're not going to be able to cover the war in its entirety. Uh, November 14th, you can catch me live at 5 p.m. Uh, I will be at the, and I didn't name it this, but it is called the Fuck It Mask Off Comedy Showcase. <laughs> that is at 5, 7, 5903 Stanton Avenue, uh, Pittsburgh, PA, 15206. It's BYOB, uh, free admission. It's going to be a great time. All the spare tires on that show. Um, also, check out Babyface po Assassin podcast. He just had on Felicia Gillespie. Forgive me if I am saying that name wrong. Hosted by Jeff Fieldhouse. Um, guys, that's it uh, for this week. Uh, stay tuned next week as my guest is Trip. Uh, author of Smoke Pit Fairy Tales, among other titles. He is also a musician, a painter, and you know how we are friends on the podcast here. Uh, he is a former Marine, so we always look forward to that. Um, make sure you check out Justin Brown on uh, interfacedeath.net. You know where to find me if you're listening to this. I appreciate it, and I'll see you next week. 